You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Psalm 146 will be our last psalm, and I think of the, of the summer, and it's apropos because of its location in the Psalter. Now, I'm, I've mentioned this, I think, all throughout, but it, it's worth, and it's uh, uh, repeating even this morning. Um, the Psalms are moving, and it's, and it's not unidirectional. This is one of the things I like about the Psalms. So, so when you're moving through the books of the Psalter, book 1, which are Psalms 1 through 41, book 2, which is Psalms 42 through 72, then book 3, 73 through 89, which are really the, the darkest of the Psalms. You move into hard territory in book 3. Moving into book 4, which are Psalms 90 through 106, I believe. Um, and, so, and, and those who put a lot of stock in, in the shaping of the Psalter, how it's been put together, would say that the heartbeat, the pulse of the Psalter beats strongest in its shaping in book four, on the far side of book three. That's now where you have psalms like the Venita, right? Oh, come, let us worship the Lord together. We, we say that regularly in our liturgy around here. Um, Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song because he's done wonderful things. Well, why are we singing to the Lord a new song in Psalm 98? Because he's the king that's returning to Zion. Um, and if you know something about the nature of book three, book three is problematized in the life of ancient Israel and the Christian because they're wrestling there with what do we do with the absence of our king? We've been promised a king. There's not a king on the throne. What do we do in the midst of that, of the absence of, of our king? And by the way, I should just say as an aside, I, I think that is one of the central features of the Christian life that we wrestle with. We, we wrestle, even in our moment right now, it's one of the reasons why in the epistle to First Peter, Peter there uses the illustration of Israel's exile all the way back in the Old Testament as an illustration of our current existence now in what we might call the in-between times. Because what, what is the challenge that we're wrestling with even in our current moment? We're wrestling with what Jesus promised us in his farewell discourse um, in John's gospel, which is what? I'm leaving, uh, which caused a lot of confusion among Jesus' disciples. Like, things are kind of going well here. And, and you're telling us you're about to go. Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm preparing a place for you. He gives them consolation. I'm going to send my spirit to you. Um, Jesus says re remarkably challenging things in the farewell discourse. When I'm gone and I give the spirit to you, you will do greater works than even I have done. If you're, if you're, did you hear Jesus say that? It's kind of remarkable, right? So Jesus is making these promises about his absence, preparing his disciples for a very crucial feature of their future existence. And that is Jesus will not be here in the ways in which they've grown accustomed to. And just so I can sort of round off the edges here, Jesus ends the farewell discourse in John 17 with the high priestly prayer. So isn't this fascinating? You have Jesus preparing his disciples for his leaving. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to give you my spirit. So I'm promising to be present with you by the spirit and absent at the same time. That's the tension that we feel in the in-between times. I'm going to be present. I promise I'm giving you my spirit. But I will also be absent. 
in a way in which you will have to come to terms with that, where your interaction and relationship with me will differ from the kind of relating that we're having right now. And how does Jesus end all of that preparation of his, for his disciples about his leaving and his presence? By praying for them in John 17. That, that, that to me, when you move in from John 14 to John 17, you, it's almost one of those places in the Bible, I think, where you got to, you need to take your shoes off. Right? This is, this is holy ground. You've entered into a place where you are actually seeing in John 17, Jesus praying to the Father by the effective power of the Spirit. Let me put this in other terms. You are seeing in John 17 an extended discourse of God speaking to Himself. In other words, you're getting a little bit of the veil pulled back from eternity to see what the eternal relating of the Father to the Son by the Spirit has been going on forever. That's, it's at the very nature of God's existence to relate to himself in otherness and in oneness. That's the Trinity. And we're seeing it in John 17 in ways that really, if you think about following Jesus, we see Jesus praying here and there. We see him up on a mountaintop. We'll see him say sort of words of prayer in passing. But an extended prayer like John 17, that is a special place in the Bible. And Jesus is there praying for us. And how is he praying for us? He's praying for us in recognition that he's going to be gone. And there's a certain kind of suffering that will come for the believer because of his absence. That's a deep part of the Christian faith that we struggle with. And I just as an encouragement to you and to me, I, I, I think about this regularly. The good news that Jesus is modeling for us in John 17 and that one historical moment that indicates his eternal life before the Father by the Spirit, is that whatever we know that's going on right now in the heavenly places, and there's a lot of mystery about what's going on in the heavenly places, but one thing that you can know for sure is that Jesus is praying for you right now. He doesn't doesn't sit idly in heaven. Um, He is active and dynamic and is relating to the Father by the Spirit. And at the core of Jesus' being right now is His intercession on behalf of us to the Father by the Spirit. And you've all read Hebrews before. You know how kind of Hebrews lets you know. I mean, this is, again, kind of blow your hair back stuff. Hebrews tells us that Jesus actually, in part, became a man so that he could learn suffering in the school of obedience, or obedience in the school of suffering. And why would Jesus do all that? So that he can be a fitting and effective high priest for you and for me. So, that, so Jesus enters into this existence for the sake of that kind of relating to the Father by the Spirit for you and for me. And John 17, in this kind of remarkable way, is letting you know what that looks like when Jesus is talking for us, when he's praying for us. Um, Romans chapter 8 you know, you have the Spirit praying with words that are unutterable, praying in accord with the Father's will. I just want to encourage you with this as an aside, because Psalm 146 leans into these dynamics. Um, be free. I say this and try to encourage you. Be free in the school of prayer as you pray to the Father. Because the beautiful, I think, kind of core of Jesus' intercessory role is, I don't know if you've thought about prayer this way before, But he takes what you say, I'm I'm going to be a little bit sacrilegious here, and he cleans it up for you. And he presents it to the Father by the Spirit in accord with God's will. 
And you all know enough about theology to know that God's will is uniquely His own. So only God can pray in accord with His own will. So that, to me, is a kind of incredibly liberating thing in your prayer life. Like, just offer it up. Um, Give it to Him. Because He's going to take whatever you're praying and present it to the Father by the Spirit in ways that accord with what God's actual will is. And the release of that is a kind of confidence to know, and that's better. I mean, it might not be necessarily what I want. It might not even be what I'm actually asking for. But it's better because it's in accord with God's will, and God's will operates in accord with the perfections of His being. That, that I, Sleep well tonight, because I think that, to me, is, is really good news about our prayer life. And I think it also can kind of encourage you, and I, I've got, I'm off script, sorry David, you don't like my rabbit trails. Um, I can also encourage you, I think, for those of you who are in groups of people that pray together. Um, why? Because there's inevitably someone in your group who's really good at it. You know, and I, what I don't, I don't mean, I'm, you can just tell, like, they're seasoned in the school of prayer. There's a maturity there. There's a depth to their prayer life. There's an intimacy there. And that can be really intimidating if it ain't you. Like, okay, now it's my turn. Yes, uh, uh, hey, what, Jesus is praying your prayers to the Father. So uh, this is a horrible analogy. But, but if, um, oh, this is, if Michael Jordan comes into the room, right, and I ask Michael Jordan to try to touch the clock up there, and he, it's going to be very impressive, or at least in his heyday, his vertical leap. Then if you ask Jeanette, like, okay, compare yourself to Jordan, try to jump as high as you can, you know, my, my two-inch vertical is not going to be impressive compared to Michael Jordan. But with, when it's within respect to touching the moon, like jump and touch the moon now, like, well, you know, the three-foot vertical leap versus the two-inch vertical leap is pretty relative with, vis-a-vis the moon. And this is, again, praying in accord with God's will. That, that's the moon. That's God's infinite being. It's, it's beyond any of our purview. And yet, He's praying for you by the Spirit in accord with the Father's will. So I'm just saying, be free and pray because He's he's cleaning it up for you. Now, all that to say, why that's important in the Psalms is the Psalms lead you through this journey of the Christian life. And it's not a journey, and you've all read Pilgrim's Progress, and you know this about the Christian life because I see a lot of gray hair in here, so people have experienced this. It's not a journey... That's just a kind of clean uh, move down the trail on Lakeshore Boulevard by Shades Creek. You know, that's, that you get on that, sh- on that and it's like, okay, a little bend here. And this is kind of nice and pleasant. The trees are here. Like, that's not that. It's more, you know, I don't know, Ruffner Mountain. Uh, it's, it's up a hill and down one and into a ravine and up on a mountain again. And the Psalms give you this aerial view of your life. The church fathers were brilliant at this, by the way, with the Psalms. Gives you an aerial view of the Christian life, moving as it is toward something like Psalm 146. But it also gives you the kind of microcosm of the Christian life, and that is three steps forward, two steps back, four steps forward, three steps back, the way in which I think most of us know our lives before the Lord actually exists. And so the Psalms are moving us canonically in their shape as a mirror of what our ultimate destiny is. There's, if I can use fancy theological language, there's an eschatological shape to the Psalter. 
that mirrors for you and for me the life of the pilgrim and its journey of faith toward the heavenly city. And what happens as you move from book three, Troubleville, book four, the Lord is king and he's the king alone, into book five is you begin to see, I don't know, the booster rockets off the space shuttle begin to kind of fall back and things become very clear about what ultimate human existence is meant and intended to be. And what's the language that you have beginning at Psalm 144 and 145 and 146 all the way to the end? It's the word that defines the Psalms, all of them. Praise. Praise. Do you notice the structure here of these first few verses in Psalm 146? I love this because it's building. Got this kind of building blocks here. Praise the Lord. Okay. Um, By the way, anybody want to guess? Here's your Hebrew quiz for the day. Anybody want to guess what that is in Hebrew? Uh Uh-huh. Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. So you have this clear imperative. And and just to see the beauty of the poetry here, notice at the end of verse 10, what's the last word? Hallelujah. So you've got these sort of bookends here in Psalm 146 where the praise of the Lord is seen as central. Praise the Lord and look how it builds. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And what you're seeing here, I think, is something about the core and the heart of Old Testament faith. I'm not separating that from New Testament faith. I think it's very important. But you're seeing something here about a particular character of Old Testament faith that understands that to be, to exist, in the realm of the living is to be in a place where praise happens. To live is to praise, and to praise is to live. So that now you're beginning to see something here in the Psalter as it presses us toward that eschatological end, that human existence and being finds its very core and center in the praise of the Lord. And the recognition of the Lord and His glory and His beauty and His otherness and His salvation and His righteousness. And you can keep adding all the attributes that you want to add, basking in them. So what do you see here? True humanity lived into its fullest, into its eschatological form. How we're going to be in eternity is not a navel-gazing kind of existence. It's an existence that's continually compelled and propelled outward to the beauty and the glory of the Lord himself. And this is, the I think, what's so beautiful about this. And that's where true joy, true humanity is found there in that mode of being. And I think you and I know when you go put the car in reverse in the Psalms, you see the psalmist mirroring, I'm so thankful for this, The fact that we live in this constant tension in our current human existence because we're sinners and righteous at the same time of that movement inward and outward and inward and outward. And and again, I've said this so many times, I'm sorry to repeat it, but it's one of the reasons why coming to church 
and being together physically is really so important because this is our time weekly where once again, hopefully it happens more, but at least on Sunday, we're being propelled outward once again to show what we believe, to confess our sins and to turn in praise again to the worship of the Lord. That's why we come together. We come together to worship him and in worshiping him, here's the irony of it all. We find our true existence. We, try, we find our true fulfillment. We find genuine satisfaction. We're made for that kind of otherness and that kind of beauty. And that's why all the competing counterfeit offers that are out there in the world leave us with chalk dust in our mouth. Like that's just not enough. I mean, that was fine, but it's not enough because we're being propelled towards something other. Praise the Lord. And the, I love how the psalmist, the psalmist likes to talk to himself. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, right? There's a sort of like, hey, you, in there, get out here. Is that sort of kind of conversation. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, my being. Um, and, and, and there's another line that you'll have in the Psalms as well, where the psalmist will say things like, don't let me die. Don't let me go into the realm of the dead. I want to be in the realm of the living. Because it's the realm of the living where true praise occurs and to praise is to really be. So again, this is all wrapped up in a Christian theology of the next world, of belief in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Where's true being to be found? Our true essence, our true existence. It's found in the land of the living and it's found in the praise of the Lord. You know, so I, I, um, I, with my students, Beeson, I forced them to, to read this German theologian that's taught at Yale for years, a guy named Hans Frey. You know, uh, German theologians that write English prose, it's a, it's a special form of suffering for a student. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things I, I forced my students to read Hans Frey is because I think Frey um, got down into a deep understanding of where the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their description of Jesus, where they leave us. So think, for example, how do we come to terms with the aims and the intentions of Jesus? What did Jesus understand his mission to be? Who did Jesus understand himself to be? Now, there's, a, there's some big name scholars out there today. If I said one of their names, you, you know, you all probably know who it is, so I won't say it. But their, their approach to this, and helpful, is to reconstruct the world, the social world of what you might call Second Temple Judaism. What was the worldview of your average Second Temple Judaistic person that's walking on the streets of Palestine in the first century AD? And from that shared worldview, they then used that data to kind of project it onto Jesus to come to terms with what Jesus thought he was doing in that historical moment. Lots to be gained and learned from that. I don't want to disparage it. Hans Frey, though, from a different standpoint, says, well, if, we're, if we believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible... And if we believe that the ending of John's gospel is telling us something about how we come to terms with who Jesus was and is, and you know how John's gospel ends, right? I mean, John's gospel ends, uh, Jesus could have done all kinds, he did so many other things, we could keep writing books to the moon and back. 
And I'm sure most of you, like me, for a long time, have read that as a kind of superlative statement. I mean, I could, I've run out of ink. I could just keep on going. There's so many things to say. Fry's point would be that's not a, a superlative statement. That's a statement of negation about the, the sufficiency and the authority of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, many other things could be written. How, how does that verse counter it? But these are written that ye might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John's Gospel ends by saying, you want to know, you want to have the kind of knowledge that leads to belief and faith? Then you're going to need to come to terms with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are sufficient and they are authoritative. And so Fry kind of helps unpack all of that. And he says, if you want to know what Jesus' aims and intentions are, then what? You listen to what he says and you watch what he does. So, for example, when Jesus says things like, I forgive your sins. Well, the Pharisees got it. I mean, they understood the... um, the offense of a statement like that. And, and the gospels tell us, right? What, what did they say? Only who can forgive sins? And, and I think the gospel writers don't connect all the dots for you, but they're like, that's right. Next verse. So Jesus is on, is on, the, on a boat and a storm comes up and then he speaks to the wind and the waves. And what do they do? They listen to him. In other words, this is what I think so powerful about that narrative. They recognize that voice of Jesus. They've heard that voice before. Matter of fact, that's the same voice that, if I'm reading Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 right, that's the same voice that brought them into existence and subdued them in an orderly way. So they recognize that voice, and that's why Peter responds, what? I'm a sinful man, because I understood. Who listens? to the Who obeys in, the, in that way, the, the wind and the sea? And the answer is only the Creator Himself. So Fry's point, as he kind of unleashes all of this, is when all is said and done, and you take account, into account the storied character of the Gospels, what are you left with? You're left with Jesus Christ must be. In other words, the resurrection of the dead, if you're following along, should not be a, Whoa! Didn't see that one coming. It should be the necessary conclusion to the outcome of who this figure is, God in the flesh, because He must be. And being in Him is to be in life. That's why Jesus Himself says in the high priestly prayer, to have eternal life is to know the Son and the Father. This is where true eternal life is. So, again, this is that kind of movement forward. Where's true life, true being to be found? It's found in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be in the land of the living. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection of the dead hasn't happened. That's not a small matter for the Christian. It's everything. It's everything. Because for Jesus to be now is for you and I to be redeemed. I was with a church in a coffee shop. You know, these cool sort of community churches do Wednesday night coffee shop theology talk things. You ever heard of this? Crazy? I did one at Avondale Brewery one time. It was like my fundamentalist dreams came true. <laughs> you know, I was uh, talking about Jesus and sipping on a Kolsch. I'm like, wow, this is pretty impressive. Um, I was with a group th- this Wednesday night talking about some of these issues and 
And again, it just sort of settled on me. You do realize, don't you, that our whole salvation depends on the fact that Jesus is bodily right now. I can't explain that to you in the realms of physics or in the kind of logic that might make sense to you. But Jesus' being in the very life of God is a bodily being. He's in the land of the living. And the Apostle Paul wants you to know something about your existence in the land of the living. You, in Christ, are you ready for this? Because we can never get over it, are already there. We're not waiting for that. You are already in that location. That's where your true humanity resides, in the resurrected humanity of Christ. And you will meet your true self in the second age, in the coming of the kingdom of God. But you are already there. Paul says it almost every page. You are already a citizen in the heavenly place. Your citizenship is already there. Your being is already in Him. You are raised. Be free, Paul says, to live into what you already are. That's the call. So what is the being free and living into what we already are? The psalmist wants you to know that at its core, it's praise. It's thanksgiving. It's gratitude. It's basking in the joy and the glory of another. That's what the Apostle Paul wants you to know. That's what the psalmist wants you to know. True joy, true humanity is found in the land of the living. Now look at this. You've got counterfeit options. That's not right, is it? People are starting to leave the room. I get nervous. Okay. Um, look at the counterfeit options in verses 3 and 4. You'll love this. Don't put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. So you see the, the logic here? Um, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord while I'm in the land of the living. Praise the Lord. Don't put your ultimate trust and confidence in princes. Um, we've seen this, for those of you who've been with me through this series. Praise and trust, fear and worship are flip sides of the same coin. In other words, an ingredient aspect of praise is trust. Where do I put my confidence? Um, it's leaning hard by God's grace into the force of the first commandment. No other God but me. And living into the force of that commandment, that trust, is a recognition that trust leads to praise and praise leads to trust. They're both related to one another on this field of mutual reciprocity. Right? You can't have the one without the other. So here you have the psalmist saying, Praise the Lord, don't put all of your confidence and trust in princes. Now, we could get way off track to kind of lean into political theology. Because the Bible, I'm going to say this delicately, creates problems for us when it comes to kind of wrestling with a Christian's relation to the political order. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 is going to say things like, hey, submit to them because the governors are those that execute God's righteousness in the world. Revelation is going to say, be careful about them. They're the, you know, they're the, the strong arm of the beast of Leviathan. So you have these tensions in the Bible, okay? But the tension here is really not on whether or not politics or political ordering is legitimate. The scriptures are going to say they are. By the way, if you want a good book to read over the summer, it's one that I, I 
I'm still wrestling with it, so I'm not giving it like my big imprimatur here. But David Van Doren's book, Political Theology, that was published by Zondervan Press, it's a nice, helpful understanding of what you might consider to be a two kingdoms theology. In other words, we have the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. Jesus is Lord over all of them, but they don't operate in the same lane, right? Um, and, and, and the big takeaway for me from Van Doren's book was politics or political ordering from a biblical perspective are both legitimate, they're necessary for the ordering of society, for, for the execution of justice in our world, politics, the political order is necessary. We want laws. But the second thing he says is, but political orderings are also provisional. They're not ultimate and final. Only God's kingdom is ultimate and final. I think that's the dynamic that you have here in Psalm 146. It's not that the prince isn't important. It's that you don't put your ultimate confidence and trust in a prince. Because what does a prince do? Prince, princes or kings do what they do. They make their plans. They build their palaces. They organize their structures. They, they set in political ordering onto a society. And then they also do what all kings and princes have done through the history of the world. They die. They're gone. This, this is why Isaiah had his recommissioning scene at that critical political juncture in Judah's life. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Was Uzziah a good king or a bad king? He was a good king who gave way to Ahaz, who was a bad king. So there's a reason why one feels the uncomfortableness of the transitions of power, especially in the ancient world, but even in our own times, because that's a tenuous moment. And here you have the psalmist saying, praise the Lord, put all your trust and confidence in him. Don't put your trust in princes because they come and they go just like all human beings do. Do you know this famous poem? I'm going to go back to your eighth grade English class. I found it this morning on my phone. Poem by, um, by Shelley. You remember this one from eighth grade, ninth grade? O Ozymandias? Okay, I'm going to read it to you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, and near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is Ozymandias king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Isn't that great? Azimon is the great and mighty king of kings. And like now he's just a trunkless piece of archaeological artifact surrounded by sand that someone just discovered. Who's Ozymandias? Have no idea. But in his day, he must have been a big deal. And like Don Rickles used to say, if you didn't believe it, ask him. He'd tell you, right? He's a big deal. Um, so here you have... This uh, move that, that the, the psalmist is, is giving you a realistic view of life. We, we deal with the political order. 
We recognize the importance of the prince or the king or the governor or the president in the land. We don't downplay this. There's a reason we pray for them every Sunday that we come together. And we should. But where's your ultimate trust and confidence? Where do you put it ultimately and finally? Praise the Lord. So he gives you the, the said contra, the rather, in verses 5, 6, and 7. Rather, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food for the hungry, and then he goes on. So rather than putting all of your hope and confidence and trust in the prince, we put our hope and our confidence and our trust in the Lord. And the question is, why? And here's the answer. This is the psalmist answer. Because we believe in the Apostles' Creed. Because we believe in the Nicene Creed. Those words that we say together, and I'm, I'm just as guilty as anyone else, often unwittingly, but those words that we say together and confess corporately every Sunday in one form or another, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That, that's a claim about God's ultimate sovereignty and reach in the whole of the cosmos. And we, whether we're really leaning into it or not, we confess that as integral to our faith every Sunday together in one form or another. So this is why he's saying, don't put your ultimate trust in the prince, who's both legitimate and provisional. You put your trust in the Lord because he is forever. I believe in the Lord Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one that spoke and all this came into existence. And so here you have this sort of beautiful litany at the end of Psalm 146 about who this Lord is. Who is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth? He's the one who executes justice for the oppressed. He's the, I'm just going to read these to you. He's the one who gives food to those who are in need. He's the one that sets prisoners free, Isaiah 61. He's the one that opens the eyes of the blind. By the way, I would put money on it that whoever wrote this psalm read Isaiah 61 that morning or got close to it. Opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, your homework is to kind of go read through that, sense these things. It, it, but if I can distill all of these into sort of one simple statement. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, He leans hard into those who see their need of Him. I mean, it's as if the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the Beatitudes... And this litany here are made for one another. How blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize the poverty of their own spirit. The, their need of something. Blessed are the meek who don't wrestle power for themselves, but extend it and give it out. Those who see their need of Him are those to whom the Lord, by the way, the one who made the heavens and the earth, he will never resist those who see and understand their need of Him. And how does the psalm end? Right where it began. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. 
Praise the Lord. To praise the Lord is to live into the fulfillment of human existence. To praise the Lord is to lean into the trust of Him. So, Father, we give this to you this morning. Thankful that you have... Um, that you've not left us in our poverty. That you've not left us in the poverty of our spirit. And Lord, we're all people of some means. We know the, the blessings and the benefits that we have in this world. But Lord, don't let those things keep us from seeing our ultimate and final need in you. Guard us from that, O oh Father. Let us, Lord, live into the fullness of human existence, which is to praise, which is to trust, which is to relinquish and to hope and to believe in you and that what you say is true and that we can pray to you knowing, O oh Jesus, that even now you are praying for us. Free us, O oh Lord, to live into that truth and let it unleash us, O oh Lord, to love our neighbors. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.